Habakkuk 2, and we'll start here at verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold his soul which is lifted up, it is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his! How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay, shall not they rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. So far, let us pray. O Lord, how precious is thine word. The word long preserved, kept pure in all ages, such that we can read it, and illumined by the Spirit, we may understand it. And Lord, we realize that in that we are completely dependent upon thee. Lord, upon inspiration, preservation, and illumination, the entire thread of the church, of the covenant people of God, exists and continues to exist because of your beneficent hand. And so, Lord, please give us insight this morning. Give me wisdom to bring it faithfully. And Lord, may you receive all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8. And uh, we're going to be really unpacking the rest of the vision. So just to set the stage again, remember chapter 1, Habakkuk, Habakkuk exists because the people of Judah are evil and wicked, and he pleads to God saying, Lord, the Torah, the law is slacked. What are you going to do about it? That's the stage. He's like, God isn't acting, and God is acting, we saw, because he's already bringing Chaldea across to the west that is going to decimate the Assyrian armies and lay claim to the entire landscape there. And so God is working, but in bringing Chaldea, he's bringing an even worse nation, worse than Judah, and they are relentless. They are voracious because they consume everything in their path, and they're never satisfied. So Habakkuk's even more perplexed. He raises his hands up again. What's going on, God? And chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 open up with him waiting for an answer. Real example of prayer, expectant prayer, hopeful prayer. And then God answers. And we see that, and we saw that in verse 3, where we see the vision. And God says, I will answer in a vision. And the rest of the book really is that vision. And he says, the vision will speak 
but it will speak in such a way that you have to wait for the answer, right? But it will come, it says. So from that patience, endurance, trust, we see the church must live. And so God's answer is summed up in verses 4 to 6, where we see there's really two trajectories, two ways of living life that will not just be for Babylon and the covenant people. It is for all people from all times, so for you and me as well. And the two trajectories are these. You will either live in pride and self-adulation, or you will live to the glory of God by trust. The just shall live in his faith. And we saw that that faith there is faithfulness. So it's begun by faith and it continues and perseveres in that faith. And that faith justifies as God accounts the righteousness of Christ to the believer. Okay, that's all summary. So now we're going to move on in the vision this morning. I have three points to talk about this morning. They are these. First of all, a taunting parable. Second, a woeful pledge. And third, a sudden payment. So a taunting parable, woeful pledge, and sudden payment. So first of all, a taunting parable. Verse 6, Shall not these all take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his, how long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. So first of all, notice the phrase, Shall not all these? Well, who are the all? Is this Judah? Is this Habakkuk and the faithful believers? I don't think so. Look back in the previous verse. It tells us who's mentioned last. The group is the nations, the goyim, the ethne, the, the, all the people scattered about that, that Babylon is just devouring. So that's the group we're looking at here. Increasing, uh, interestingly, sorry, the rod of God's judgment, this is super interesting, on Judah actually spills over the banks and splashes onto many nations. Remember, Israel was to be a light to the nations that would spill over the goodness of God. But now the judgment that is peculiarly meted out for Judah is actually also spilled over to the nations. And so the covenant people are still, in some ironic way, a light but now in judgment. It's really interesting. Now the very fact that the nations are involved in the resolution of the vision, remember, we're, this is God's answer, and he keeps bringing up the nations, is it just speaks volumes to God's interest in all peoples of all times. God does not ignore the suffering of any people group. He is very aware, even now what is happening around the globe. There was revolts in Papua New Guinea in the last few weeks. Things in the Middle East. We see tensions mounting between Taiwan and China. We know what's going on south of the border. Uh, God is very aware with what's going on. But we've got to be careful. Because in spite of the fact that God is aware, and sometimes one nation will be the instrument of bringing judgment victimhood does not imply innocence. It's important. These nations may be the victim of the ruthless hand of Babylon, but that doesn't mean 
they're innocent. We know that specifically from Judah. They're not innocent at all. They really set the stage. Those treated horrifically are not without sin. We must remember that. Instead, what this teaches us is that the justice of God will always be exact and that the balance of God's justice is perfectly calibrated to his sovereign will, which will be executed not just in the moments of judgment, temporary things, like what's going on in certain countries right now, but will extrapolate to eternity. And so God's balance of justice will be set right in his way. And that's why it says, though it wait, though it tarry, sorry, wait for it. Now notice the next phrase. The nations shall take up a parable against him, that is Chaldea, and a taunting proverb against him. The three words, parable, taunt, and proverb, are all concepts from Israel's wisdom literature. The three divisions of the Old Testament Hebrew canon are the law, the prophets, and the writings. And we see the wisdom literature within the writings, and we see the wisdom literature are books like Psalms, Proverbs, Job. And that's where we see these same concepts, Proverbs, parables, and taunts. You read the Psalms, it's full of this kind of stuff. You read Proverbs, well, they're named Proverbs, right? And so these are wisdom observations. Now, what that means is that because they're Proverbs, you don't know exactly how these riddles, these Proverbs, will be fulfilled. But we've got to be impressed with the fact that speaking through these wisdom sayings, God's justice will be perfectly executed. Parables are short sayings. They're like pithy sentences that are meant to be memorable. That's why Jesus spoke in parables so that you can communicate profound truths in simple ways. Taunting proverbs, the word kind of says it, they taunt, they mock. They're satirical in a way. Israel had been warned of itself that if, look, God says, if you are unfaithful, if you run roughshod over my law, Deuteronomy 28, 37 says this, and thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations whither the Lord shall lead thee. And so that says something. It means that God is very interested in concepts of honoring what's honorable and shaming what's shameful. We're going to pick that up. But now Chaldea becomes a proverb. Now these proverbs, as we see in the word taunt, are provocative. When you taunt someone, you're provoking them. And in this way, these proverbs are provoking the folly of Babylon's pride. They're, they're showing it in a mocking, satirical way. Now, this is interesting because you step back and say, hold on a second. Mocking is right? That's, that sounds wrong. So is it right for God, for us to mock the overthrow of God's enemies? I think we have to step back and say this. First of all, Habakkuk is describing through God's vision how oppressed people will respond 
when tyrants are overthrown. Look throughout history. When tyrants were overthrown, the people rejoiced. And often those tyrants did become proverbs to the areas. Julius Caesar, we, we think of all kinds of sayings that came out of the Roman Empire when big wars happened and tyranny was crushed. Um, you, those of students of history would know them better than me. But in describing how people respond, he's not prescribing us to start mocking people. Okay? But the vision describes this is the normal course of action. But I gotta step back for a second. Because at the same time, satire is a powerful tool to expose folly. The triumph over tyrants is rightfully etched in scripture in Proverbs. So there is a way of using Proverbs to mock injustice and to mock and make fun of, to, to poke ridicule at tyranny. Is it beneath the character of God then to taunt the proud? What would you say? Do we see examples of this in scripture? We do. Lady Wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 26 says this, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Psalm 2 verse 4, which we opened with as a call to worship, says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And so there is a category in the war psalms of the Prince of Peace that he will mock people who mock him and his kingdom and his justice. It will be part of the vindication of God's rightful claim that he will publicly shame the wicked. Because that's what vindicate means, to, to put things back in order, to establish it in the right way. And to do that, he will mock the proud. Because God's glory is established and magnified as his honor is established. And as he honors the humble, the just, who shall live by faith, humble faith. And as he disgraces the arrogant, who are proud, and as we saw in the earlier verses, consume the nations. They're never satisfied. I believe then that it is very important for us to recognize the poles of honor and shame. Have your parents ever said to you, shame on you? Maybe it was a school teacher, shame on you. Is not that which is wrong, shameful? There is a grace in shame because by shaming sin, you expose how ugly it really is. And that grace hopefully will drive your children or the people who do shameful things to consider the folly of their ways and seek for humble mercy, humbly for mercy. You see, honor and shame is not a matter of if, it is a matter of what is honorable and what is shameful. Society is supposed to reflect then God's approval of what is right. And yet we live in a culture that is increasingly inverting 
honor and shame, don't we? we? It honors the shameful and is shaming the honorable. And so what's the take home on the front here? It is to be a people that upholds things that are very honorable and to praise that, to, to, to affirm that. Affirm it in your children. Affirm the honorable things. Affirm the honorable things in the community. And yes, let us call out the things that are shameful, not with pride, because then we're being shameful. Let's do it in humility. There is a way to do that. And let's consider that. Let us be courageous. Are you known? Are you known? Am I known as a person who values what is honorable? The word Proverbs, as I mentioned earlier, refers to enigmas, riddles, things that aren't quite understood. Now, the ambiguity of a proverb is very deliberate here. Why? Because riddles mean there's more to it than meets the eye. Sometimes somebody asks you a riddle, and you have to think it through, right? There's something there. Think of farmers. When you look under the tractor and you see a pool of oil, you know something's leaking somewhere. It's unclear where. you got to go look for it. It's ambiguous until you start the engine, you look for the leak. Similarly, in these riddles, Babylon knows there's fluid on the ground. The kingdoms of this world know something is wrong as these riddles are spoken to them. They're given notice, as it were, but they don't know where. And that keeps coming back through scriptures because we see nations and peoples and tyrants trying to bolt down every door to isolate themselves from attack, do everything to make sure they're safe. But these riddles speak to the fact there's oil on the ground. Something's wrong and they don't know what. So that means for us as people of God, take courage. God is speaking. And even though we as Christians have embraced the decisive victory of Jesus Christ. We still also don't know exactly how and when God will fulfill the judgment on Babylon, who is a prototype of the final Babylon. There is ambiguity, even for us. But notice has been served. The goal is guaranteed. And the end of the city of man will come. I like that. I take courage in this. The vision is speaking to us to be hopeful, not to walk with our heads down. Oh, the world is going bad. What will become of the world? No, 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 no. The vision speaks in riddles and is calling you and me as people of the word to take hope. Take hope. That brings me to the second point, a woeful pledge. The first woe. Woe in the Hebrew has a flavor of exclamation, like, whoa. The one British commentator that I'm reading in this, and if any of you have knowledge of the British English, he said the best word he could think of was oi. I thought it'd be interesting because maybe some of you guys connect with that one. Oi, he says, captures it well because it's both like, ah, oh, and a rebuke. Within this word oi, woe, looms a dreadful threat. So maybe you're going to have to do some digging on British English later. That's where woe comes from. Woe to those increase, who increases and enriches himself by things not his own. How long? 
They are taking what belongs to another, right? That which is not his own. Chaldea was just, that's mine, thank you. No, probably not even thank you. And they are under an ominous woe, it says. A rebuke, a looming threat. But notice at the end of the phrase, it says, how long? So the nations at the one hand are going to be saying, woe unto you. On the other hand, they're saying, how long? And so there's kind of a tension here. Echoing the opening of the book, Habakkuk also said, how long? It was then Habakkuk, a prophet to Judah, saying, how long? Now the nations are saying, how long? You see what's happening? Remember how I said Judah's judgment is spilling over the banks? And in the same way, Habakkuk's how long? Looking up, the nations are now saying in the vision, how long? Keep that in mind. Something's happening in this vision towards the nations. Just notch it in your pocket. Take it and we'll think about that again later. I recently was reading a book. I'm reading a book about the invasion of the Islamic Turks into, um, into Europe throughout the Middle Ages, especially right now into Armenia, 1071 AD. The descriptions are horrific. Hundreds of thousands of Christians were massacred and enslaved. Thousands of churches were burned and turned into mosques. Landscapes were stripped of all the trees and all the life. Cities were plundered and obliterated. And they moved from there into Jerusalem. And the, and the description is it got even worse. The, the things and the atrocities that were done to man are unspeakable. But the interesting thing is the savagery continues. Read the news, Nigeria. Read about October 7th. Savagery in man continues. And so this cry of how long is nations realizing by the grace of God, there's going to be people within the nations realizing their gods never satisfied. The cry of how long, I believe, turns away from their idols and starts looking to Jehovah. And that is where the vision takes us. It is, it is a shift through judgment. Now, perhaps you're sitting here and you read the news and you are shocked at the feverish, feverish tyranny that is swelling even in our own country. And you think, how can doctors kill the unborn, murder the elderly without impunity? And as the Bible says, and they love to have it so. How can citizens in this country be defrauded of their rights how can justice be warped that the innocent are losing in the courts? How can taxes be turned into a means of stealing from the citizen and to feed outrageous ideologies? And that's happening. How long? How long? The tension of the vision is this. Woe unto you, Babylon. How long, O Lord? Does your theology have room for the tension? Does your theology allow for a determined woe upon unrepentant Babylon and a persistent, voracious Babylon that the same people say, oh Lord, how long? Do you have room for that? Because the Bible calls us to think like that as we are now the church Militant. You know in Revelation where it numbers the 12,000 tribes, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000? 
What is the numbering of the tribes for? It is for war. In the Old Testament, when the tribes were numbered, it was numbered according to the fighting men of Israel. In the book of Revelation, it is describing the fighting, the church militant. It is numbering the elect of God who are battle ready, who are braced for war, crying out, how long? And yet the sword is out, woe unto you, Babylon. Now the strange phrase, and ladeth, and ladeth himself with thick clay. Now, if you're not reading a King James or an old Geneva Bible or a Tyndale Bible, you'll be like, thick clay, where's that coming from? Because your Bible won't say that. It'll say something like um, loads himself with pledges or loans, something like that. Now, I believe both are right. There's a double meaning. This Hebrew word is only used here in the entire corpus of the Old Testament, so translators were wrestling with this, and I believe the, the commentators are right. You see both in this, because pledges are like thick mud. The pledges of Chaldea are like mud. Okay? All the wealth that Chaldea had accumulated by taking from the nations are like a loan that one day has to be repaid and it is like heavy clay that is sticking to them and they can't shake it. I remember sometimes, especially in our teen years when my corrals were still muckier, we would be chasing heifers in the heifer corral and it had just rained and I'd be running after a heifer and through the mud and your boot sticks but your feet keep going and that sock comes out black. You ever had that? The mud holds the boot down. It weighs it, it sticks to it, it sucks it in, and that's the kind of language this thick clay should bring into our mind. Ill-gained wealth, such as Babylon did, sticks as mud to the heart. Paul says this, he says, but they that will be rich in this world fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Babylon is getting pierced. Sometimes, as Paul warns here, Christians can get pierced by wanting what does not belong to them. What are possessions to you and me? Chasing riches drags you down in the mud, heavy mud. One day, the loan of Babylon will be called. That's what the vision says. Woe, it will be called. One day, our loans will be called in as well. The Puritan John Trapp says this. He says, it is strange. He that first called riches in the Latin bona, which means goods, goods and services, tax, goods, he says, was mistaken. The scripture calls them thorns, snares, thick clay, a great burden to the owner. And that's why Jesus said, having food and clothing, let us be content therewith. But if you want to stick your feet in the mud of covetousness, 
You must reflect on your soul. Woe unto you if you covet after that stuff and start to become a Babylon. Is your soul nothing to you? Is it worth it to take this, to covet after it, to purchase everlasting death, to sink into the bottomless lake in this thick mud? Consider your soul when you consider wealth. And instead, let us as Christians be praying, O oh Lord, make me content to know the grace of generosity, to not clamp my wallet shut when God calls it to be ready to give. Do you long for a treasure that will not weigh you down as mud? Do you hunger for riches that will not need to be repaid as a loan? Would you be free from the mud that sticks to your boots and drags you to this earth? Because that's where the boots remain, right? The Bible says, seek those things that are above. It says, Abraham sought a heavenly country. Jesus said, lay up, not, lay up treasures in heaven. In Christ, it says, are all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And so Christians, let us remember, Christ's treasures are not soiled by earth's mud. They are heavenly and therefore incorruptible and eternal. And so let us learn from Babylon's shame and the woe that is attached to it. Third and final point. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them. The text goes on and says this, shall they not arise suddenly. The word is very emphatic in the Hebrew. Suddenly, it says, without warning, in the flash, without a doubt. They will wake up. These nations will wake up one day. And Chaldea, again, thought itself secure. They had everything taken care of. They had the nations under their feet. In fact, the capital city of Babylon boasted itself with 20 years of siege supplies. That's incredible. Because you read in the Bible that Samaria fell after two years. That's already long. Can you imagine two years of siege supplies? Now multiply that by 10. Incredible. And yet, the Persian army took them in one night. Oh, the danger of trusting in the walls of this world's supplies. Oh, I know my flesh lures me. Oh, it lures me to trusting in my wealth, in my abilities my knowledge, my government, my insurance policy. Oh, let us be warned through this text not to put our hope in these things, nor in our constitution, nor in our law, nor in our medical system. What good are all these things to a nation and a people who forget their God? What good is it when the Almighty pronounces judgment 20 years of siege supplies gone in one night. What strength can rulers muster against the decree of the Almighty? What good are swords against the decree of God? The word 
sword that comes from his mouth is more powerful than the best guns the army will ever produce. It is Jehovah who swept the mighty armies of Pharaoh in an instant under the Red Sea. It is Jehovah who, with the angel of the Lord, took out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And that is why, again, taking the entire thread of the text, Proverbs 6.15 says this, Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. You get that? Without remedy, without hope. And let us learn then to hold all our resources loosely. A steward who manages his house, the household of the master does best when he remembers they are not his to keep. Can you imagine a steward thinking they're mine? It's not the way it is. Now notice the phrase, that shall bite thee. Again, your version probably will not say that. And that is because the Hebrew here is very interesting because it literally does mean to bite. At the same time, if your Bible says here, is it, your creditors shall take what is theirs or something like that, it is because a creditor, like a banker, when he takes interest, he is biting off an extra portion. He's biting off what you thought was yours. And that is why there's a play on words here between bite and a creditor. Just like we saw earlier between thick clay and pledges. Okay? So basically the image here is the nations who were stolen from are taking back, demanding back their loan with interest. The capital which was unjustly taken from then is being called in. And it will take a bite on Babylon, more than Babylon could handle. And so it says, they shall awake. They wake up as from a sleep, and thou shalt be for booties unto them. In the ancient world, creditors could just suddenly call in the loan. Give me back my money, and I want the interest. Thank you. And so Babylon will be vexed and turn into spoil. And really, as one commentator said, the plunderer will be plundered. I think we need to see that the vision is speaking of the triumph of God over Babylon. The pancake is flipped on the other side, and it will burn on that side. Injustices are turned over. Are you willing, then, to take the vision and to trust that even though this world is thick with injustice, God will set all things right? There's hope in this vision, strong hope for us. Now verse 8, the last thing, and there's a lot to be seen in this verse. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, and then I'll skip a bit, because of men's blood and for the violence of the land and of the city and of all that dwell therein. Now Nebuchadnezzar had regularly, we know, spoiled the nations to fill his coffers. But notice the movement as he, his conquest is described in this verse. Notice what it says. Um, because of men's blood, which refers to what? What does blood refer to? Life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Leviticus 17. But then it goes from life to land. You see that? For the violence of the land. And then it moves to the city. So we've gone from the rural areas 
to the urban areas, and then we're going to go back to the people, to them that dwell therein. So you see that? Blood, rural, urban, back to people. So life on the poles. You see that in the text? God is very interested in human life. Cities and rural areas are meant to support life flourishing. And when these things are plundered, life does not flourish. The damage of the spoiling of the nations is like the damage we could see to ecology, cultural institutions, and social structures of society that are not meant to be ends in themselves. They're meant for people. And so when we see our government flexing its muscle to cripple agriculture as it is doing in our nation, when policies like are creating a housing and a heating crisis through ideologies, through lies that militate against God's design for these things, and these things become the gods, they are acting, these nations and these governments are acting as Babylon. And they speak of the dominion of the city of man. Cain built a city. The Tower of Babel was built. We shall build for us a name. That's what happens. And therefore, earned goods and money, as we heard this morning, are meant to be freely distributed and not meant to be plundered. Our society flourishes when we give freely and we aren't robbed. Lands and trees, farmers, people who like to garden, are meant to be harvested to feed the people, to care for the soil, to care for life, not to be ravaged to feed your own little empire and your bank account. There is a social stewardship that is not an end in itself. It is a goal of flourishing. Sola Deo Gloria. To the glory of God. And so the take home. Opposite of Babylon. The people of God. The kingdom of God. We should be the best stewards of the land. The best in land. And in city. Because God cares for all of creation. And in his judgment of Babylon. We see that he cares to make all things right. Now we still have to ask. The one phrase I skipped. It's tying it all together in a bow here. All the remnant of the people, right? The remnant of the people shall spoil thee. A remnant are the people that are left. These are left from the wasted and plundered countries, the downtrodden, the unlikely, those of no note, that little fiddly guy down there that I squished, Babylon says, will rise up. Even the tiniest nations are going to mock Babylon, the mighty. It is a reversal of fortunes here. And even if the remnant is few, yet because of God's decree, they shall spoil the oppressor. But I'm going to take this back and fly over this with the big picture of Scripture and on the nations. Like I said, the judgment on Israel spills over to the nations and the nations are speaking. Let us take this and think to the larger final judgment 
in which the remnant of the nations will take on a final shape. We would call that in theological terms an eschatological shape, a shape towards last things, towards the goal. Okay, that's what eschatology talks about. So Habakkuk, taking this now in, speaks both to the salvation of Israel, Judah, and the nations. And the hope of the nations is bound up in the destruction of Israel's enemies because Habakkuk is speaking for Israel. And yet at the same time, the nations will be blessed by the destruction of Israel's enemy. And therefore, the just of verse 4, you see that? The just shall live in his faith, is not just Jews. The just shall live by his faith must therefore include the nations. We're sitting here as non-ethnic Jews participating in the blessing of the just shall live by faith, the message of the vision, the hope of the vision. You and I are discovered in the hope of Israel. And doesn't the suffering of the nations today continue as we see new Babylons rising, as we see new tyrants, as we see continuing exploits of the city of man. Yes, we see that. Yet we will walk by faith. The suffering that Christians go through from all the nations is the vehicle by which God brings worms like you and me to our knees. To see the vanity of liking Babylon. Instead, crying out to Israel's God to find true justice in Jesus Christ and triumph in Christ's conquest. And that is why when we see in the text, look back at the text, verse 8. When it speaks of the violence of the land and of the city... I believe there's a double play again here. It's not just talking about all the cities that Babylon conquered. I believe Habakkuk speaking in the vision that God has given him is speaking of the city. Zion, the people of God's city, and the remnant of the people saw that Zion was plundered, right? Jerusalem was brought to naught. And God says in Zechariah 2, verse 8, he says, regarding Zion, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. And so in a remarkable fulfillment, this text is just so rich, as the nations participate in the richness of Israel, all the remnant, both Jews and the nations, become the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Stay for Sunday school if you want to get more of that. We're going to be talking about that today. And because the remnant is the new Jerusalem, the church is the new Jerusalem, her king, Jesus, will take vengeance on Babylon for God's people still today cry out. Revelation 6 talks about those who are beheaded for the sake of Christ. Today, just like Habakkuk, crying out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, 
dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Is God deaf to the cries today? And was he alive speaking in the vision? No, he's always speaking. The same vision is the same word. In fact, get this. What happens to Babylon will happen to the final Babylon. The cities of man, the exploits of man. Revelation 18 says this. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, fallen. The vision reached its terminal point. Babylon will fall. The saints that cry out, how long? Remember, you had to hold that intention. The woe and the time. Revelation 18 puts them together in triumph. One last thread. Remember I said the word to bite refers to the creditors taking back their loan. But this word to bite is interesting because throughout scriptures, when you think of a biting animal, what do you think of? A serpent, a serpent. And this thread gets really interesting because God even says in Amos 9.3, regarding those who think they can hide from his judgment, he says, and though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence, and though they be hid out of my sight in the bottom of the sea, doesn't matter where you are, thence, this is striking, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. What's going on here? So God controls the snake. Keep that in mind. God controls the snake. But the serpent in the Bible refers to the devil, the adversary of the people of God. So what's going on? This brings us right back. Remember, we talked about end things. Let's talk about beginning things. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed. The serpent has a seed. You know what that seed is? Babylon, the cities of man. And between the seed of God, the people of God throughout all time. And it says, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the serpent is going to nip at the heel of the people of God and kill him. But the serpent will get the fatal blow. I mean, you were saying, well, you know, kill and fatal. It sounds like the same thing. It's different. So remember, I said, who's got the serpent in his hand? Amos 9.3, God does. I will command the serpent. The serpent, the devil, did bite the heel of the seed of the woman. And it was mortal. Jesus Christ died at the cross. But the devil had no clue what he was doing because he killed the prince of life. Strikingly, it is the prince of life that died through the bite of the serpent. And in that what looks like defeat, that loss of the prince of life, the debt, the loan 
that was speaking against us was cashed in and our debt to God was paid. And this bite of death will then be answered because the prince of life cannot be ultimately crushed. Christ rose from the dead. We gather on Sundays because the prince of life triumphed and brought in the new creation that Genesis 3.15 talks about loss. The end talks about victory. And Sunday lives in between because we are living today in the tension, expecting the final coming together of all these things. Babylon is a picture of the kingdom of the serpent and ultimately judgment falls on Babylon through the serpent crusher who in this whole time is in the hands of the Almighty. But you've got to be thinking, hold on a second. It's the nations that are the creditors in this text. What's going on? How does this work? Yes, yes, it will fit together. Because the nations, the remnant who looks to the Christ, to the great prince, the king of the nations, right? Go ye into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. As the gospel advances and people look to the king and there's a remnant that is no longer in Babylon, okay? These nations will inflict the final blow on the serpent. Am I making this stuff up? Is this fitting in the Bible? Absolutely. Who did the fatal crushing of the serpent's head? What's the answer? Jesus did at the cross. And Paul takes that, takes the nations that look to that Jesus and says this in Romans 16, 20. You maybe have never seen this before. It says, and the God of peace, peace over against the the vanity and the violence of Babylon, the God of peace shall bruise or crush Satan under your, plural, nation's feet shortly. Isn't that amazing? Put it together for a second. Serpent deceives Eve. Promises made. Vision happens as Israel in her typology and Babylon in their typology speak of the big picture of Babylon and the people of the king. The serpent crusher comes. He's killed. He rises to life. The gospel of his victory goes to the nations all over the place. Nations look to the prince of life. Nations preach the gospel further and redeem cultural institutions and redeem this world to the glory of God. And as this all happens, remember the church militant, the numbering of the 12,000 times, the 144,000 thing? That all comes together as the church then takes the victory of Christ, that final blow, and brings the tension together at the end as the church militant becomes the church triumphant. That's all woven in this text. It is amazing when you think about it. If you find yourself this morning... In the city of man, you will not survive the judgment of the Almighty. In the courtroom of the Almighty, there is no getting off easy. It will be perfect justice. Think about it. If Jesus Christ was not spared, but he bore the wrath of God to the full, 
will not the enemies of God be brought to full and perfect eternal justice? While we bear the sword, the church militant, let us remember that though the mills of God may grind slowly, as one commentator said, they grind exceedingly fine. I stand back from this text, these three verses, and I see the demonstration of the love of God for his glory. To the praise of his glory in justice. To the praise of his glory in delivering rebels from Babylon and turning them into remnants for the king. And let us remember then, let us learn that when the enemies of God today in this nation and in this world plunder the outposts of heaven, the churches, to raise our minds up, not to the clay and the mud, but upward where there is no clay and mud. Now, you might be thinking, this verse calls us to sing of triumph before the victory, before the coming together. That's why the vision speaks, the just shall live in his faith. Because faith does not depend on speeches from earthly thrones, but on the immutable word of God. It embraces the word of God, which we have in front of us, knowing that it is as true, if not more true, than what we see going around us. And may we seek God then in prayer, humbly, to season our minds with his word. In the struggle, maybe you're going through, nourish your patience with the granaries of heaven. And finally, in Jesus Christ, parables and riddles in the Bible get turned into what? Songs. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, the serpent crusher, and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood, death, fatal wound. Out of, this is amazing, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. We are here because of divine, sovereign, merciful grace that has taken you and me out of Babylon. He could have left us and brought us into this. That is why we sing as a church. That is why the songs of Zion must resonate from our homes 
Sing at home. Sing in the workplace. Sing to the glory of God because these riddles take on reality. But if you're living in Babylon, you will stay in the riddles. You will see the leak, but you will never find the solution. But in Christ is victory. And so take that home, be encouraged, and sing songs to the glory of our great King. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, holy God. What a precious word. What a great gospel. What a triumph over Babylon. We thank you that you love life. You love creation. And you love your glory. And all of these come together in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we seek you. May we worship you. May riddles be turned into songs as we worship your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together and sing.